uh, to join us at College Square, whether it's Wednesday, next week, Thursday, next week, or the week after for National Night Out. There's a poster at the Starbucks I live at when I'm writing and uh, doing work on this side of the water where, where it's for their volunteer work, and it says, wow, I, I'm never going to get that hour back from my life, said no volunteer ever. And come on, it's so true, especially when you're doing work for the kingdom of God. So the ability to do what we do in that neighborhood is really just a door that God has opened. So I just encourage you, see that table on the way out and find just one time, maybe three times, but maybe just once where you can make it out and help us have an impact in that neighborhood because there is an impact that's being made. When we launched this series two weekends ago, I was talking about talking to Ava, the woman who's been in that neighborhood longer than anybody, been there for decades, and how she just started rattling off phone numbers from memory. And we talked about how that's old school as we launched this series, Your Cell, Your Soul. And we launched this series because it was 10 years ago that the iPhone was launched in summer of 2007. And since then, there have been 10, excuse me, I'm about to say the wrong number. There have been 1 billion iPhones sold, not just smartphones, iPhones. And when you talk about smart devices, there's now more of those on the planet than there are living, breathing human beings. Screens are now everywhere. So we've been asking ourselves, what's their proper place? Because in May 3rd of 2016, Time Magazine named the iPhone the single most influential gadget of all time. And they said that it fundamentally changed our relationship to computing and information, a change likely to have repercussions for decades to come. So we've been asking ourselves, what are these repercussions? What are these consequences in our lives? And as followers of Jesus Christ, how do we keep our technology in its proper place in a way so we can keep Christ in his proper, proper place at the center of our focus and at the center of our hearts? And we've realized that we've all benefited from our smartphones in a hundred different ways, and we've probably all abused them at some time or another. But all of our, our habits with our technology it's just like every other habit we develop in life. It reflects our heart. It reflects our priorities and who we are. We've talked like technology is not a monster that's come to conquer us, but it's a mirror that shows us our beautiful yet broken spirits. And the problems that we address in this series, whether it be situational awareness from last week or where do we find the wisdom from two weekends ago, those are timeless problems. And so many of the issues that we come across, they're not new, but they're timeless. In the Bible, we have has timeless truths that speak to even the digital age. Even what we walk in today, these technological innovations that come wave after wave, the technological inventions, they're really invitations for us to look at, okay, what do I believe and how do I walk it out in my culture and in my context? They're opportunities to take a fresh look at God's word and how it applies. And tonight, I wanna take a fresh look at James chapter three. James chapter three, Verses 3 through 6. If you don't have a, a Bible on your phone, you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's even Bibles under your pew. And if you can find your way to James chapter 3, it says in verse 3 that we can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in his mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire, and the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. Now that we're feeling edified, let's go to God in prayer. 
Lord God, we thank you for tonight, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for passages like this one in James that are as relevant now as they were thousands of years ago when they were written. God, I just pray that tonight we would receive from you whatever truth you want to speak to us. God, right now we turn our ears and our hearts to you and ask that you would meet us here in this place with your word and what you want to plant in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we talk about repercussions. And one repercussion is the benefit of the wealth of information that we have at our fingertips, in our pockets, almost all the time. Through notifications, through, through messages, through blogs, whatever it is, we're inundated with information, so we, we never really feel out of touch. And we talked about how the problem for us, it's not illiteracy. It's not that we can't read what comes up on our phones or, or, or on our screens, but the problem is often illiteracy, that there's so much information, so much that we're being flooded with, that it becomes hard to determine, okay, what's actually of value? What actually should I hold on to? What should I let go of? Sometimes it's even hard to figure out what's true and what's false. Think about this. The average output of email and social media text every day is some estimated 3.6 trillion words. Not million, not billion, 3.6 trillion words. That's about 36 million average-sized books, bigger than the Library of Congress. We're pushing out through text and email daily. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times, kind of like when I'm talking throughout the day, you might ask me what I said an hour ago. I couldn't remember. And then we post things on the Internet and then kind of forget we ever posted them. But then came Time Hop, this little application within Facebook that, that pulls things up that you said years ago. Now, Facebook has been around for a while. I got on it before I even knew Jesus in college. So it'll pull stuff up from a year ago, three years ago, seven years ago, ten years ago. And sometimes it pulls something up. I'm like, I, I said that? Or it pulls up a picture. I was like, I wore that? <laughs> Maybe it pulls up a haircut. You're like, I forgot I even cut my hair to look like that. But we say it, and then we forget it's even out there. You know, I was talking to a, a high schooler once when I was in youth ministry because he had been throwing some wild stuff out there on the, the Internet, on social media, Twitter, Facebook. And he was like, yeah, those words don't count. They're just out there on the Internet. It's not like they were in conversation it, that sounds wild, but sometimes we can get misconceptions about our words and technology. Recently, well, maybe not recently because time flies, the, the Snapchat app came out where it introduced you could send messages and pictures, and after a while, they would just disappear. Instagram and Facebook have jumped on the, the wagon now to where you can post something on Instagram live, and within 24 hours, it's gone. Makes it seem like what we say, maybe the things we post, they're not permanent or they're, they're, they're temporary compared to our other words. But when you think about it, the words we say with our mouth, within a hundredth of a second or less than that, I don't know the science, they're gone. But the things we post, the things we write, the things we send, technology, it doesn't make our words less meaningful or more temporary. In a lot of ways, it, it puts them down permanently. One of my favorite practices uh, around the NBA draft and NFL draft is a lot of these guys are being drafted. They're 19, they're 21, and they grew up with social media. So people go back to when they were 15, right? <laughs> Middle school, high school, and the crazy things they were posting. And uh, I can't even say them from the pulpit. A lot of them are made for middle school lunch tables. But they look back and just look at some of the ridiculous things that these athletes that just got drafted were saying at 15, 16 on Twitter. Some of it's hilarious. 
But the, just this year, one of the uh, draftees in the NBA draft, Mark Cuban, the owner of the Mavericks, the guy from Sharp Tank, he, he said, and I quote, delete your stupid tweets. You know, one day, we're not going to stand before a, a new boss, but we'll stand before the everlasting God. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, he says, I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. All of a sudden, the flood of idle words that we can just push out and post at a prolific pace carries a little more weight and becomes a little more significant. More than any generation in history, we can feel the weight of idle words because we publish them at a pace greater than any other era. But as we've said with every issue we dive into every week, this isn't necessarily a new problem. You take away technology, on average, the average human, whether they're quiet or outspoken, the average person spends one-fifth of their life with their mouth open talking. One-fifth of your life, do the math, your mouth is open. I need a screen for it like a window to keep the flies out when you start thinking about how long my mouth is open. But some of that is, is proper. We were created by a God who communicates to communicate. We were created in his image. And God's identity is, is rooted in words. You look at the Old Testament, he spoke creation into being with his very words. You look at the New Testament, his son stepped into the earth as God's word made flesh. But I want to look at the Old Testament account briefly because it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. It says, God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. So there's trees with seeds with the potential for more trees and more harvests. And then it says in Genesis 3.15, this is where God is speaking to Adam and Eve after they fall, and he's speaking to the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed, this one lowercase s seed, and her seed, that one uppercase. We'll get back to that in a second. It says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And when you look at those verses, then you look at the context of James chapter 3, where it says a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. You know, last week we talked about situational awareness. Talked about how our baseline orientation in life is that we're on a battlefield. Ephesians 6 says there's a, a war being waged daily. And there's a battle for seeds. There's a battle for the trees and the harvest they produce. And one flame of a word can wipe them out. You know, the capital S seed spoken about in Genesis 3.15 is Jesus himself. But Jesus also spoke of seeds in his ministry often. He talked about the four seeds and the four soils. He talked about small seeds of faith that can move mountains. And he talked about seeds that represent the people of the kingdom. And then Paul also spoke of seeds. He talked about seeds that he planted in the hearts of his churches. And he talked about seeds that he planted, Apollos watered, and that God would make grow and bear fruit. You realize when you read your Bible that there's a battle for these seeds, these, this potential, these callings, these destinies, and there's a battle for the harvest that's to come from them. But one fire can wipe it out. And the enemy loves to use the flame of our tongue. In 2011, there was a fire that's called the Wallow Fire, biggest fire in Arizona history. Some 538,000 acres were burned. Over 6,000 people were displaced. And this massive enormous fire could be traced back to not some 6,000 fires, but one single fire, one flame. You reflect on that, and you reflect on James 3, and you think, man, what if one word, one conversation, one verbal jab can displace someone from their destiny? 
Proverbs 18, 21 in the message version says, words kill, words give life. They're either poison or they're fruit, and you choose. Now, it's not saying that your, your words are like Harry Potter where you say something and poof, stuff magically happens, but it's saying that your words are either constructive or destructive. The Bible reminds us that all verbal activity has the potential to be dangerous. We talked about forest fires. You talk about house fires. Most house fires aren't started from the outside. Most of them are started from the inside because the owner was careless. We can't be careless with our words. But if you go online, you'll see words used carelessly and and outright violently. Condescending comments on articles, jolting tirades on Twitter, snarky judgmental remarks on Facebooks, accusations on blog posts. Again, our baseline reality is that of a battlefield. The enemy's weapon of choice seems to be our words. And his arena of choice in our culture is so often on the internet where these bodies that we're created with, that distinguish us as individuals, distinguish us as people with identities and dignities, when we get behind a keyboard, the internet strips us of that. We lose sight of one another and we often step into what's called anonymous anger. Anonymous anger is this documented phenomenon coined by researchers, the reality that we're way more likely to rage and lash out and say things screen to screen that we would never say face to face. You can ask my wife, I've long called these people keyboard warriors. Timid when they're around people, but you get them behind a keyboard and a screen and they're William Wallace. (laughs) In an article called Anger is the Internet's Most Powerful Emotion, Nick English says it's very difficult to link words on a screen with the reality that there's a living, breathing human on the other end of the connection. You know, there was a... (laughs) experiment slash joke slash prank that Jimmy Fallon did uh, where Robinson Cano was coming back from Seattle where he had signed for millions and millions of dollars. He was coming back to New York um, for the first time. And uh, credit to Craig Rochelle, it's in his book Struggles. I found the video and I want to show it to you tonight because it speaks to this idea of anonymous anger and things we'll say to a picture that we wouldn't say to somebody's face. Hi, I'm Robinson Cano and I'm about to get booed by some Yankees fan. Are you a Yankee fan? Yes. Now, Robinson Cano is coming back to Yankee Stadium tomorrow night for the first time since becoming a Seattle Mariner. Are you going to boo him? Of course. All right, well, we have this picture of him right behind you, so whenever you're ready, go ahead and boo it as much as you want. Boo! You know what? You no longer welcome here. Bye. Try again. You no longer. <laughs> oh, I do. I do. Now, Robinson Cano is coming back to Yankee Stadium tomorrow night for the first time mm-hmm. since becoming a Seattle Mariner. Are you, are you going to boo him? I am going to boo the out of him. Well, uh, whenever you're ready, go ahead. All right. Give him your best boo. Boo! You suck! That was, that was awesome. Maybe try, try it again. Should I try it again? Yeah. <laughs> How you doing, Robbie? Welcome back to New York. Thank you. back, right? Yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> no problem, are you going to boo him? Uh, you know, he won a World Series ring here, but he did leave for the money, so... Why don't you go ahead and give him as many boos as you want? Come on, Robinson. I mean, how many World Series titles do the Mariners have? Oh, come on, boo! You're better than that. You got a, a beard now? You're better than that. Boo! Welcome back to New York. Thank you. Uh, whenever you're ready, go ahead and boo! Move. You should go home, boo! Try booing him one more time. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. 
Are you going to boo him? Yes, I am. Boo. All right. Well, we actually have this picture of him right behind you. So whenever you're ready, go ahead. Boo him as much as you want. Boo, Robinson. You should have stayed here. When is this in New York? Not in Seattle. Try booing him one more time. Boo. Stay in Seattle. We don't need you in New York. Hey. How are you? Good. How you doing? I'm good. It goes on and on, but I'll stop with that last one because he's so focused on the picture that he doesn't recognize him standing flesh and blood right in front of him. I could go back into part two of situational awareness from a week ago. But then you also look at the one guy who was probably the most worked up, dropped a four-letter word in the midst of it. All of a sudden, he's the one who's probably the nicest when he comes out of the box, right? The most cordial, the most uh, nice in his introduction back to New York. But again, it's much more easy to say things to a, a, an online bodiless avatar or picture that we would never say to a flesh and blood brother and sister to their face. You know, I, I was reading a reply to a post on the internet recently from a, a believer that said, listen to me, you fat cows living in New York, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. The sovereign Lord is sworn by his holiness, the time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be drug away like fish on a hook. Okay, I lied. That's not actually a post on the internet. It's the prophet Amos, and it was uh, Samaria, not New York. But sometimes I read comments online, and it's not far from that. You know, the platform that believers and people in the church so often jump to behind a screen is that of the Old Testament prophets, where we, we speak with bursts of righteous anger. But we have to remember a couple things about those prophets. One, they were called. That's not to say that we're not called as a people to speak out, but two, they were hesitant. You look at Moses at the burning bush. He hesitated. You look at Jeremiah. He, he, was, he was basically asking God, could this cup pass from me? Whereas we so often itch to let off on some self-righteous fury that we like to paint as righteous anger. When James tells us later in this same letter to be quick to listen, and slow to speak. He speaks to our itch to vent. Again, this inclination to speak in self-righteous fury and kind of paint it as righteous anger. And we need to know one more thing that the, the prophets, they didn't just criticize, they energized. They didn't just, they weren't just critics, but they pointed to the hope of God. So often in the church, we miss this and we end up with critics and not witnesses. But what's a good baseline to operate from? There's an artist He's a rapper theory has, and I'll never forget this line where he says, my goal is to build, uplift, and not destruct. Tearing down is too easy, not challenging enough. Again, just speaking to that impulse to tear down, it's in our flesh. Encouragement actually takes some, some work. And maybe you're thinking, did he really just quote some guy named Theory Hazard from the pulpit? Let me speak from a guy maybe you've heard of, Charles Spurgeon. Okay, he says, the easiest work in the world is to find fault. Echoing again that our impulse, the, the, the impulse of our Flesh is to find fault. But we talked about our baseline, how we orient ourselves last week, but we also talked about the fact that the second part of situational awareness is what we observe. We got to watch two things with our words. The first thing we need to watch with our words is we need to watch the words that we send. Watch the words we speak, watch the words we post. You know, Abe Lincoln kept a dresser full of unsent letters because he understood the power of words. He understood the power of being slow to use them. And these weren't a bunch of love letters that he was too shy to send to some love interest. No, they were full of angry words that he was too wise to send initially. Now, he called them hot letters. And by the time he cooled down, inevitably, he never sent them. But he had a dresser full of them. How many posts and emails and things online would we refrain from if we did the same thing, if we were slow to speak? 
But you can go back even further in history. You go to the book of Acts, there's a man named Barnabas. And it's so funny because I know of Barnabas, but I always forget that his name, that's not his given name. That's his nickname. So that nickname is something that he earned, that he was given from the people around him. And that nickname means son of encouragement. In Acts chapter 4, we learn of this this nickname, but in Acts chapter 11, we see him walking out just why people would say, yeah, your name's Joseph, but we're going to call you Barnabas. Because they sent him to this church that had been planted, and he went there, and he began encouraging. It's the first two things it says when he got there. He was filled with joy, and he encouraged them. And that church grew so much that in the next verses, he has to call for reinforcements. Why? Because encouragement is like oxygen in the body of Christ. Keeps it healthy. It spurs it to action. And in a culture where it's uncommon, where the impulse is to tear down, when you actually take the effort to encourage, that's attractive. It's notable that wherever Barnabas goes and acts, the the church grows. And no doubt it's because ministry is being done, right? There's practical work being done. The Holy Spirit is ministering to hearts. But encouragement enriched the atmosphere, brings life, it brings fruit. Encouragement is so pivotal to the health of the body of Christ that God commands it. Many different places. Hebrews 3.13, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it says, encourage each other and build each other up. Again, if our tongues can be a flame, or if they are a flame, then, you know, that flame can be destructive. But in in the same way, Steph and I, we have this beautiful oil lamp that she found at some, one of those many places she shops, I don't know where. But it's a beautiful, like, old school oil lamp. Now, used carelessly, we could burn the house down with that thing, right? But... Used well, it lights up a room, it's beautiful, it adds ambiance, and and I love it. Used wisely, it can be a huge blessing, and it has been. In the same way, with our tongues, it can be a, a gift, it can be a curse. It can bring life, it can bring death, we choose. But let me just, man, when you talk about encouragement, don't postpone your encouragement. And don't, this is a rabbit trail, but don't say, well, I don't want to say that to them because they're, they, they might get a big head, right? I don't want to give them that compliment because they might get big-headed. Well, no one in the Bible does it say that, right? Encourage them, leave their heart condition between them and God. But also, man, there's, a, there's an expiration date for encouragement. Just this week, the second rock star in the past six months from my youth committed suicide. And no doubt, when they were still alive, they received flattery, but it, it's it's... Cruel and ironic that it's the week after these guys die that there's just so much praise about their significance. There's so much honoring them. And again, no doubt when they were alive, they got flattered. But encouragement is not about flattery. It's not the same as encouragement. Like, encouragement isn't just about flattery. It's about fueling faith in people. It's not just, I like your shoes, your haircut looks great, even though those are, be nice people. Like, I encourage that. But encouragement in the scripture indicates lifting someone's heart to the Lord, provoking them to faith, hope, and love, spurring them on to life and purpose in God. See, God the Father said to Jesus at Jesus' baptism in the Gospels, he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God spoke words of identity and affirmation over his own son. Skies opened up. His voice says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's profound, and I believe it's significant that Jesus began his ministry after his father affirmed him and encouraged him in this way. Well, what are we speaking over people that's going to propel them into their ministry, their destiny, and their calling? So important in the life of our own children. 
right, as, as God spoke over his son. But you can apply this to everyone we're surrounded with. we got to watch the words we send. But secondly, we got to watch the words we receive. And I know you think sermon on words, probably going to tell me not to cuss, not to gossip, and again, not to cut people down. But, man, sometimes we got to stop putting ourselves down. Again, most house fires don't start from the outside. They start from the inside because of carelessness. And I've, in my life, gone through seasons where I'm just careless with the way I speak to myself. And I have to. I had to and I have to get this right because the one voice that's most important in our life is our own because nobody talks to you more. Nobody. The voice in our head speaks to us more than anybody else does. Proverbs 13.3 says, though, that he who speaks rashly comes to ruin. But the verse right before that says, by the fruit of his lips, a man enjoys good things. And I'm still working my way from one to the other. But again, it's not about flattering yourself. You're not puffing yourself up if you're just standing under the promises of God, right? Like, I'm called and equipped. Hebrews 13 says that. I'm more than a conqueror. Romans 8 said that. I'm, I'm part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a, a chosen people, as it says in 1 Peter 2. You got to learn to preach to yourself, edify yourself. For my birthday, Steph rearranged my office because I'm not Mr. HGTV. My office, I looked around one day. I was like, this looks like a college dorm room. Needs a little help. And I told my wife that. She was, all right, for your birthday, she is Mrs. HGTV. She went in there and arranged things and painted things, and she got it looking nice. And one thing she did is she hung my certificate of ordination on the wall, right, where I was ordained to preach, teach, and to pastor. But again, the biggest pulpit I'll step up to in my life is the pulpit in my mind where I preach to myself. We got to learn to edify ourselves, speak God's truth to ourselves. So you don't have to wait for somebody to preach the roof off on a weekend, or you don't have to wait for somebody to pray for you, even though that's powerful. But man, we got to learn to take the word of God and speak it to ourselves in a way that brings life. Because again, our words are either building us up or they're destroying us. And we got to choose that, man, I'm going to speak life. But secondly, as we watch the words we receive, we have to consider the words we receive. What are the sources? Because on my phone, I get to choose what apps give me notifications. I have all but a couple muted. Otherwise, my homepage would be flooded with notifications from this app or that app, NFL app, the Facebook app. And I just turn them all off, except for a couple. And similarly, in our life, so many people from so many sources, so many backgrounds who maybe know us this much, know us a lot, know us very little, will attempt to speak into our lives. And we get to choose you know, what's going to be on our homepage. In another analogy, man, somebody who's only read a small piece of your life, been around for a little piece of your life, if your life was a book and they've only read a paragraph, they've only read a page, then their book review of your life shouldn't carry much weight because their misrepresentation doesn't matter. But on the other side of that coin, we desperately need people we trust, who we've invited to do life with us, who not only will be our, our, our encouragers, our cheerleaders, they'll be the Barnabas to our Paul, but we also need people who we've invited into our life that can say, hey, this isn't right. Hey, this, this needs to change. Who can challenge us and hold us accountable. You know, there's, a, there's a, something called a controlled burn or prescribed burning. And uh, up until the 17th century, Controlled burns took care of well over 50% of California's land each year. California backed heavily off that as population grew, but the U.S. Forest Service has steadily increased using it again over the past decades. One of the reasons it is done is it decreases the likelihood of serious, hotter, hard-to-control fires in the future. 
It reduces the amount of flammable material in a controlled manner so everything doesn't get destroyed later. Basically, it's proactive instead of reactive. And what's interesting is that scientifically, many trees depend on fire as a successful way to clear out competition and release their seeds. The giant sequoia that we all celebrate, it depends on fire to reproduce. The cones of the tree, they only open after fire releases their seeds because the fire's cleared out all competing vegetation. You know, the tongue is a fire. In the same way we need to be careful with it, we need controlled burns. Tough conversations from trusted people. Avoiding those tough conversations can lead to explosions, explosive fires down the road. And like with that giant sequoia, sometimes the heat of the tough conversation drops the seed of conviction, drops the seed of change that eventually bears fruit. You know, sometimes hard words are a blessing. Proverbs 27, 6 tells us that the wounds from a sincere friend are a blessing. This isn't some kind of Christian masochism, but having people in our lives that can say to us, man, this is inconsistent. This, is, this isn't right. You need to reconsider this, where, as Fred says so much in Newport News, their no gives us pause because we've given them a place in our lives where they speak encouraged, but they also challenge and hold accountable. Those conversations sting, those conversations burn, but those conversations also bring life. And like the giant sequoia, again, it's where fire releases seeds. So don't let your life, don't let the lives of those around you and your family or, or friends that they've called you into their life to hold them accountable, don't let them have unreleased seeds of potential because we've tried to dodge those uncomfortable, hard conversations. Come on, we need to invite accountability and deep relationship into our lives. We're not called to do this alone. And we're gonna speak more on that next week, how to have deep relationship in the digital age. But tonight, so far, this has been a broad application to our words, to, to the words we write, the words we speak. But if I can take it full circle and take a look at our social media, again, the this, this smartphone and the words we post to that, uh, and look at the Bible's wisdom for the smartphone age, because there is wisdom that speaks to it. You know, James talks again about the inherent danger of our tongues and our smartphones. They extend that power of the tongue to the power in our thumbs. And so often we take this call to hard conversations and correction and accountability, and we go run to the Internet with it. Let me tell you, social media is great for conversation. It's decent for discussion, but it's a pretty crummy place to put people straight because your keyboard can't hold the weight of that conversation. James goes on in his letter, though, to say that pure speech, which is possible, has its origin in wisdom. So if there's eternal wisdom to guide us and our habits, what is it? Now, James is so often called the wisdom book of the New Testament, the Proverbs of the New Testament. I want to go to the Old Testament book of Proverbs and just look at practical Proverbs, timeless wisdom that we can here tonight, and hopefully even just change our habits tomorrow, this next week, these next months, as we no doubt use our phones, no doubt post to social media. And it's not going to be perfect, but come on, let's try to apply this wisdom to our lives. Because the temptation in our culture, especially in our culture uh, where there's so much information and so many ways to speak to that information, the, the impulse is that we comment on everything that happens, that we need a stance on everything that happens. There was a time where people might say, you know, I don't really have an opinion on that because I don't have, I haven't been informed on that subject, but you see it less and less. But you know, sometimes wisdom is evident in silence. There's been a verse in my life that I don't know how I heard it when I was young, but I remember thinking about it as a teenager, thinking about it as a young adult, 
and applying it. It says in Proverbs 17, 28, that even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. Now, very rarely when I sit in a room of people this size or even a room of people smaller, am I the smartest person in the room? And I learned all very early on that if I just keep quiet, sometimes you look smarter than you really are. I applied this verse a lot in my life, and it helped because I was an introvert. I was quiet by nature, so I was like, you know what? I can just sit back, play the background. People think I'm smart. But again, we, we have this constant itch once we step onto social media to comment on everything, and we thank God, right, live in a country where we have free speech, where we can express our beliefs, we can express our ideas, we can express our faith freely. But as Paul says in his writings to the church in the New Testament, not everything that's permissible is beneficial. Sometimes we forget that our free speech, it isn't free of repercussion. It isn't free of consequences. Sometimes wisdom is evident by keeping our mouths shut. But we want to be relevant, right? I want to be hip. When some new news comes out, whether it's sports or music, I want to let, I want to let people know before everyone else. And I want to let people know that I know before they can let me know because I want to be on the cutting edge. I want to, I want to be in the know. But Proverbs 12, 23 says, the wise don't make a show of their knowledge. But fools broadcast their foolishness. Again, sometimes wisdom is best shown in silence. But there's a rub to this. There's another side of the coin. Because, again, in my life, I championed that top verse. And I was like, man, if I just keep my mouth shut, everything will be gravy and I'll look smart. But when you look at the gospel, you look at the good news, you look at Jesus Christ. He says, hey, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And the good news demands, commissions us to open our mouth and share the hope we have. You know, we're called to proclaim this good news. I watched the news last night, the local news, for the first time in a long time, and it wasn't, uh, the anchor wasn't Charlie Chaplin. It wasn't silent. There were words being used to convey the news in the same way. We're called, we're commissioned as a believer to share the good news we have, and that's going to use words. So then you look at social media and how we can share words that reach hundreds, thousands, even millions of people, and the question is, how do we, in wisdom, Use that as a tool to bring glory to Jesus Christ and not abuse it, right? You could ask the question, what would Barnabas post? What would Barnabas post? And the first proverb to look at, Proverbs 12, 18, says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You know, social media posts can provoke people to good works, can provoke people to anger, it can poke and prod. We're swinging like a psychological sword. So before I hit post, the question is, am I helping or am I healing? Am I bringing division or am I bringing reconciliation? Am I bringing fruit or am I spreading poison? And maybe you would say, well, I'm posting the truth, so here goes nothing. Well, before you hit post again, Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. You know, what makes something authentically Christian sometimes isn't the content as much as it's the intent. Often our tone, it's not as important as the, or excuse me, the truth we share the tone that we shared in is just as important. You know, Paul doesn't just encourage us to share truth. In Ephesians, he says, hey, share the truth in love. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, hey, man, you might have all the knowledge in the world, be able to argue everybody down from their points, but if you don't have love, you're like a clanging cymbal. Now, in layman's terms, he's saying, hey, look, you're not anointed, you're annoying, right? Because you, you do it in a tone that doesn't represent Christ. Then Proverbs 18, 2 says, fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their opinions. One of my, my pet peeves, no doubt you've seen it happen. Somebody posts an article, posts a blog, and then somebody comments. And you can tell 
They didn't read the article. They didn't read what was posted because sometimes they get it wrong even what the stance was in the article or in the, in the post. And you realize this person just came to express their opinion, not to understand a single thing that was just posted. And I love, maybe you heard of Babylon B. It's like the satirical Christian satire Facebook page. And nothing weeds out these people like that because there's the people that come through, don't read the article and don't realize this is satire. Or they don't read the article and they realize, oh, that's not actually what they even meant in the first place. So... That's a rabbit trail. On a more serious note, social media has created a forum where we think that every opinion holds as much weight as another. But they don't. You know, I heard recently it was said that opinions outside of relationship are just noise pollution. Often, that rings true. Opinions outside of relationship, often they can come off as just hollow advice or sometimes straight up judgment. You know, relationship and the trust that comes from relationship is the foundation that, wears, that bears the weight of these heavy conversations, these moments of correction. But we hear our call to have hard conversations and so often run to the internet. And so often I see people stepping into heavy conversation and moments of debate or even moments where they're trying to correct somebody. And I'm like, you don't know that person beyond a couple of hellos. I don't even know what the name of their spouse is. But it's so easier, so easy, and it is easier to type an opinion at somebody than to actually walk alongside somebody in life and do life with them. So we post so often what amounts to, according to that quote, noise pollution, and according to Proverbs, folly, and we keep it moving. But you know what's also notable about Barnabas, his interactions with Saul, is that he was able to not just bring Saul to the apostles and be an encouragement in that way. He, it says that he shared Saul's story, what he had been through, who he was, and he shared that with the apostles. And what's powerful is that shows that not only did he care, but he sat and listened to Saul share his story so that he could share it to the apostles who would listen to him. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in encouragement as being a, an opinion or a piece of advice, but sometimes the greatest encouragement we, we can give somebody is just show up and listen up and be there. Bob Goff, who once said, the best encouragement I've been given when I'd fail was a hug, not an opinion. But understanding, listening. You want some practical advice that will make your life significantly more enjoyable. You don't have to attend every argument that you're invited to. Proverbs 19.11 says, sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. You take that the opposite direction. You lose respectability by being outraged by everything. Or, or as people say these days, triggered Christians online are some of the most triggered people I see. And do the math. Eventually you become the boy who cries wolf. It's hard to respect or take seriously. And then you take it even further. Inviting yourself into an argument is, is even more foolish. It says in Proverbs uh, 26, 17, that interfering in someone else's argument is as foolish as yanking a dog's ear. So whatever you want to call it, uh, post-policing, uh, digital diarrhea where you have the impulse to comment on everything, even with people you barely know, bringing correction, it carries the same success rate as pulling a pit bull's ears as walking by. Again, social media is great for dialogue. It's Rarely great for setting people straight, especially in an argument that you weren't invited to. And so often, we become victims of that. Somebody who wants to come out of left field and comment on something or set us straight. Man, Proverbs 26.4 says, answer not a troll, excuse me, a fool, according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. 
Man, hurt people hurt people. You know, broken people break things. Social media is a forum where people can so freely do that with, our, with their words. But you know what? Foolish people are the ones who hurt back. To take it from Proverbs to Jesus in the Beatitudes, it says in Matthew 5, 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And i got to pause before I go any further. You talk about persecution in us. It's almost not worth even talking to because it pales in comparison to the persecution around the world. People that are persecuted for their beliefs, persecuted for their faith directly, experiencing martyrdom for their faith. In our culture, so often it's indirect where somebody's thoughts don't necessarily attack you, but it does attack your beliefs, your ideas, your faith, even if it's not directed at you. But we would do well to remember the beatitude just previous to this one where it says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. What does the meek will inherit the earth mean to social media? That means when calm reason fails, we keep it meek, we keep it moving. We don't seek to win at all costs, especially when the cost is division, when we as the church are explicitly called to reconciliation. If I could have Levi come up, he's going to play the guitar and close us in worship. But Charles Spurgeon, to quote him a second time tonight, he says, Next time you're inclined to find fault with everybody, and set your brethren by the ears and create a general scuffle. I pray you let the chimes ring out. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Whenever you're bent on growling business, pausing a while and hear the Scripture admonish you, the fruit of the Spirit is love. You know, in the New Testament, when Saul got to writing these epistles, he didn't talk very often of us owing other people things, but two things he comes back to again and again that we owe the people around us, it's respect and love. So often those are the two things that are missing, especially in our age. There are two things that Barnabas extended to Saul at his conversion. Respect, love, encouragement. We got to think if he didn't extend those things, where would Saul have ended up? Where would the church have ended up if Barnabas didn't show encouragement in that way? Again, the questions we got to ask ourselves, man, who am I provoking into their calling and their destiny with my words? Or am I simply sowing destruction? Because our words, again, they're either fruit or they're poison, they either bring life or death, and we get to choose. But as we stand and we go back into worship, before we leave this place, I want us to find encouragement in God's word. Again, no matter what we talked about in worship, I don't know what issues you come here tonight with, Maybe it's thinking you're perfect and you have no issues. That in itself is an issue. (laughs) But come on, if we could stand, we're going to go back into worship. God said again at Jesus' baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Ephesians 1.6 has been a verse that's powerful to me because it speaks about adoption. We just adopted. But in the King James Version, it says he has made us accepted in the beloved. And I love that it doesn't say he's made us accepted in Jesus or he's made us accepted in Christ. He says he's made us accepted in the beloved. Why did it specifically say that? I believe he's pointing back to the Jordan River where God said, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. And God wants us to know that when we're under the blood of Christ, we're his beloved and he's pleased with us. May this give us confidence and not just confidence in our condition, but confidence in our commission conversion for Saul was a powerful experience but I love that it says right after that he got to sharing he got to his commission that God had given him to share the hope he had and no doubt that was encouraging to the people around him no doubt there were some controlled fires but 
but he took the word that God gave him that encouraged him and he shared it. God, help us to share the hope we have. And God, if we're here tonight and we feel like our, our tank for hope, our tank for faith, God, our, our tank is just empty. Maybe we're feeling dry. God, I pray tonight we will be reminded of what your word says about us. God, that we're accepted through the beloved because of what Jesus Christ did at the cross. Because he rose from that grave, we can step under the blood of his sacrifice and that grace, that mercy. God, when you see us, you don't see our mess, you see your son and his righteousness. God, we thank you for that. Come on, if you've never taken that step in your life, we're going to go back into worship, but come on, we're going to have people praying in the back and I'm going to be up here and I'd love to pray for you. But come on, let's worship God in this moment and praise him for not just who he is, but who Jesus Christ has made us to God. You were